Good afternoon. It is Monday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. Our show created inside the Carver Center for Public Radio. Today, Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore examines debt and how that debt can be a financial drag, not just for individuals or single families, but for the entire state. What we are saying is, you know, to really identify within jurisdictions, local fines and fees, you know, that can be potentially eliminated. That's just ahead. Later, we have one more archival trip into the Prior Center archives before our winter hiatus from new visits with Randy Dixon ends. Randy will be back with us next week. But this hour, we'll hear again the creation of the McClellan Kerr Arkansas Navigation System through archives from the Prior Center. The number of Arkansas deaths from COVID-19 is now more than 10,000. The Arkansas Department of Health added 48 confirmed deaths to the state's total Saturday and 40 yesterday. There have now been 10,065 confirmed Arkansas deaths from the disease. Governor Asa Hutchinson tweeted that far too many Arkansans have died from the virus, and without more people getting vaccinated, there would be more deaths. The rate of new infections in Arkansas does continue to drop. Yesterday, the ADH reported 801 new cases and nearly 1,400 fewer active cases in the state. Arkansas lawmakers are set to consider a proposal to expand the state's prison system during the fiscal legislative session that begins today. This week on Arkansas PBS, independent state Senator Jim Hendren said in addition to adding prison beds, the state should also spend money on rehabilitation and crime prevention programs. Just continuing to build more beds and build a huge ongoing cost to maintain that prison population without addressing the reason for that population and who's in the population is a failure to really address the, the, the fundamental problems. Last week, Governor Asa Hutchinson said adding nearly 500 beds to a prison near Calico Rock would cost 60 to $100 million. If state legislators approve the proposal by the Arkansas Department of Corrections, construction could begin next year. The firm GasBuddy.com finds the average gallon of gas in Arkansas is seven cents higher than a week ago, $3.14. That price is also 23 cents more expensive than this time last month. A plan for a new interchange on Interstate 49 and an extension of Northwest J Street in Bentonville will be the subject of a public meeting this week. The city of Bentonville will host the virtual meeting Thursday evening beginning at 530 on Microsoft Teams. More details about the planned work And the meeting can be found at nejstreetinterchange.transportationplanroom.com. Sunny and spring-like today. Highs from 63 to 69. Clear tonight. Lows in the lower 40s. The Tuesday forecast from the National Weather Service includes sunny conditions. Highs again in the 60s. This is Ozarks at Large. Earlier this month, a coalition of organizations joined together to forgive over $35 million in medical debt to Arkansans across the state. Dr. Sharice West Scannelberry, president and CEO of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, and Abby Hughes Holesclaw, senior director for Arkansas Asset Funders Network, recently spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore about the causes of medical debt, the policies to help bring an end to the debt, and how medical debt can also lead to unnecessary fees and criminalization. I'm joined today by Dr. Sharice West Scantlebury, President and CEO of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, as well as Abby Hughes Holesclaw, Senior Director for Arkansas Asset Funders Network. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks, Matthew, for having us. Absolutely. So let's start by establishing what exactly leads to medical debt. Is it as simple as just an unpaid bill from a doctor's appointment or is it more complicated than that? Sure. So, you know, medical debt is occurs for a whole host of reasons. Uh, For us in particular, we are focused on Alice families, asset limited, income constrained, employed families here in Arkansas. Whereas um, these families, uh, which make up almost 50% of our Kansans, simply do not make enough money to make ends meet. And inflation 
and salaries have not kept pace in Arkansas in particular, so that already you have families here in our state, again, close to 50% of those families who are working, working hard, working several jobs, but even with that, do not make enough money to meet all of their household expenses, of which medical debt is one. So these families are often choosing between medical debt and food, medical debt and transportation, medical debt and gas and electricity. So those choices are always there. And so that accumulation of that debt can happen for a number of reasons. And of course, with COVID over the past several years, it has then been exacerbated. So what causes medical debt? There's a whole host of reasons that, that, that there is a cause of that medical debt. But for our Alice families who are working, working hard, working hard to support their families, who just simply do not make enough to make ends meet, medical debt just continues to, um, to be an issue that uh, prevents that family from thriving and prospering. Let's dig in just a little bit to that that Alice worker that you're referring to, the asset limited income constrained employed workers. We're not just talking about folks who are making minimum wage, right? We're talking about folks who may have full time salary jobs as well. Is that right? And often benefits um, even. And these folks are but one crisis away. Um, as Sharice notes, they're they're living and able to make uh, the budget work just barely. But one car breakdown, one unexpected bill, one emergency room visit can really throw them into a cycle that the debt also begins to compound itself, and interest is then charged, and ultimately can lead to criminal proceedings, which then adds a whole new set of fines fees related to court costs. So, you know, the state of Arkansas ranks second nationally with our share of adults who are non-elderly reporting past due medical debt. And, you know, we know too from the Urban Institute that 37% of Arkansans currently have debt and collections, which is about 10% higher than the national average. And what's striking is this is even more disproportionately difficult for communities of color. 56% of communities of color in the state of Arkansas have debt and collections. So these Alice families, asset limited, income constrained, employed, are working they are doing their part. In many instances, they have more than one job. They're making good wages. But again, they cannot sustain an unpredicted financial bump in the road. And if the pandemic is nothing else, it's been one big bump in the road for two years. Well, let's let's dig in a little bit into maybe why we see this medical debt impacts, you know, BIPOC communities perhaps more than it does a white a white family. Do we have any sort of idea as to why that occurs? You know, in a state like Arkansas and in the South in general, these are communities who historically have not had the same opportunities, um, have faced barriers to building assets and wealth. They often lack the generational wealth that many of us have enjoyed over the course of our family's history. And the the starting line for many of these communities is, is honestly just a different place. And so again, sustaining something that is unpredictable when you don't have that emergency savings pot, you may or may not have family and friends who can assist in time of crisis, um, specifically around finances, and you don't have the assets to draw upon to help you sustain an unpredictable moment, really, again, continues to spiral individuals, especially communities of color that we have disinvested in historically, and therefore has a deeper impact. And I want to also emphasize that in, in Arkansas, you know, which is a state that is you know, close to 80 percent white. You know, I think it's 76, 70, you know, that this is because uh, I don't want to colorize this issue. 
that this is an issue that is um, mainly for white Arkansans as well, that there is a disproportionality there. That is absolutely correct. But I want to make sure that it is clear that in our state, uh, we have we have far more white families than we do families of color who are Alice families. And I want to ensure want to make sure that we also indicate over and over again that these are folk who are working, who are working. So this is not about personal responsibility. This isn't about slacking off. This isn't about intentionally getting low wage jobs. Right. You know, if we put a face on it, we have teachers who don't make enough money to make ends meet. We have dental hygienists who do not make enough money to make ends meet. Um, we have public radio people. We have public radio <laughs> personalities who do not make enough money to make ends meet, you know, administrative assistants and, and uh, uh, you know, and other workers. So, you know, if we give it a face, it is, um, and, you know, many of those I just named were women uh, led fields, but, you know, it, it's men and women who, you know, that that our wages in our state just have not kept pace with inflation and thus continues to create that gap between what is a wage or set of wages that you can actually support your family on versus, you know, just simply just not making enough money to support your family. Uh, what's the difference between, say, giving a person money that they can use to pay off the debt as opposed to just debt forgiveness, which is which is the program that, that y'all are doing? Well, to clarify, I was going to say that the Asset Funders Network and specifically three foundations, the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, the Arkansas Community Foundation, and HOPE, which is a community development financial institution, partnered and partnered with other donors in the state of Arkansas to pay off this $35.2 million of medical debt for almost 24,000 Arkansans. And we did it through a nonprofit called RIP Medical Debt, that this is the, the business that they are in, that they do. We did it, honestly, also to raise attention to this very important issue and highlight that while at this moment in time we were able to do this, that really the policies and systems that helped create the debt to begin with is really what we're aiming to change. And you make a really interesting point that, that I don't want to lose. And that is what's the difference between giving money to individuals to pay their debt directly versus forgiveness. I wholeheartedly believe that especially Alice families know best how to budget their dollars, how to spend their dollars. They are making, you know, dollars and cents stretch further than many of us could ever imagine. And we've seen from the federal stimulus payments to the child tax credit advancements that people are using dollars in wise ways to pay their children's needs, to buy food, to buy gas, to get to work, to pay the rent, et cetera. And I absolutely believe that increasing wages, giving people direct dollar assistance to use in the way that makes the most sense for their family very much should be applauded and is, in my opinion, good policy. This specific program allowed us to work through RIP medical debt to buy down this debt uh, on the secondary market to leverage, you know, buying it for pennies on the dollar. So a very different apples and oranges. Right. So so the idea is that instead of, you know, giving the money to someone to say, you have, let's just say, $1,000 worth of medical debt, I'm going to give you $1,000. What RIP Medical Debt is doing is they're buying a lump sum of money that has been sent to collections. And let's say that's a million dollars. And so what RIP Medical Debt would say is we will buy this up wholesale for, you know, half of that. 10% of that, and it will just cover all of it. Is that correct? Exactly. The, the grant makers and the donors of this campaign were able to raise over $200,000 that ultimately bought $35.2 million in debt. Which I think says something about medical debt as, as a whole, right? That, you know, it's, it's, 
it's fascinating that we can say, here's $35 million worth of debt. I'm only going to offer you this much money. And the debt collectors will say, that's enough. Why is that? You know, I'm not an expert in this per se, but I, you know, I will say that for a variety of reasons, the debt was sold off. Um, It was uncollectible. It had gone for a period of time. And whatever uh, hospital or system ultimately sold that debt, you know, they they wrote it off and 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 moved it on off of their books. And so that would probably be a different expert for you to get into the why and and at what point. But I I think you know part of the policies and changes that we were really elevating through this town hall that we hosted to talk about medical debt was that. This wasn't always the case. We had a professor from UAMS talk about how managed care and our current system has evolved since the 70s and 80s, and that there are a variety of ways that hospitals and our healthcare system as a whole can make it easier for families to understand the programs and opportunities they have to not end up in the moment of having the debt, not being able to pay the debt, and it heading to collections. Because the impact on that local family, again, can be devastating. It, it, it also says that that debt isn't necessary to begin with. Like that debt is so negotiable to begin with. It's not so much that it's arbitrary, but it is negotiable to begin with and such that you do not have to create criminalization from it, um, which is, you know, which can be the ultimate, the debt itself is a detriment, but then the criminalization of it, you know, can truly devastate a family, you know, everything from uh, uh, ruining your credit, you know, to getting your driver's license taken away, you know, to, um, you know, being able to just function in the future because you're just saddled with this debt. So this process and the way in which this business model is created just is as an example that it doesn't have to be this way. The work that that you're doing is not just paying off this medical debt, but you are working towards creating policy plans and ideas, not just at the state level, but at the federal level as well. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of policies you have in mind to kind of prevent you from having to do this in the future? Sure. So there there are two types and Abby, jump in at any moment. You know, there there's a focus on medical debt itself and policy and court debt. And the reason Abby and I uh, talk so much about the fines and fees and the court debt is just simply because it is just so detrimental to an Alice family. So I'm actually going to start with court debt and maybe, uh, Abby, if you can talk a bit more about the medical debt. But just for the court debt, you know, policies that we're looking at is, you know, identifying jurisdictions, local fines and fees, and potentially eliminating those that really do not serve the community and uh, and its residents well. You know, we're not saying if you get a speeding ticket, if, if you speed, you shouldn't get a speeding ticket. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is, you know, to really identify within jurisdictions, local fines and fees, you know, that can be potentially eliminated and thus, you know, creating further debt for families. You know, implementing a, a no suspension of driver's licenses uh, for failure to appear um, to pay fines or even having your driver's license suspend, uh, suspended. Um, because, again, that suspension prevents you from going to work, which prevents you from, you know, <laughs> paying your debt. Um, and then another, as it relates to court, is, um, you know, amending the state's debt, co- debt collection laws uh, to better protect consumers. Um, no one enjoys getting those calls and they can be extremely aggressive and menacing. And, you know, what ways can we amend how the state goes go about collecting laws that better protect our Alice families and consumers are just a couple of policy examples we plan to pursue. And just to add to that, I was reading an article in the Democrat Gazette within the last week about the state's public defender crisis and how overloaded our public defenders are right now. And we know when families or individuals have representation in court, their outcomes are by far usually better. Again, it's negotiable. The fees are reduced or they're able to find a solution even outside of the court. And, you know, it looks like in our state, the ability for people to have access to 
public defenders who are their caseloads seem to be going through the roof right now and the reimbursements for that and, and dollar allocation to support public defenders is, is really strained. I'll add also for medical debt. This is actually good news that the federal no surprise bill passed and has been enacted. So I, as a consumer, can no longer get a surprise bill from, say, a hospital where the anesthesiologist that, you know, uh, helped me happened to be out of network and I didn't know about it and turn around and a few months later when all the bills are coming in, wham, there's some big bills. So that is changing and it's a policy that we absolutely applaud. In addition to that, you know, our state can take ownership and and enact legislation that helps better protect our Kansans in general from out-of-network bills and from abusive medical debt collection practices. We know that debt collectors are hounding individuals to do the best that they can to get any dollar out of them. And Sharice mentioned earlier, a lot of these individuals are making hard choices between food for their kids, paying for electricity, keeping the house warm during this cold winter, and paying some on their medical bills. They also could enact and change our state legislation to limit the reporting of medical debt on credit reports. That can really impact an individual's overall credit report, which has much longer term implications for one's ability uh, to seek credit, to apply for home loans, et cetera, and cap the interest charges on medical debt. Again, you know, we're trying to make sure that some of these things are protected and what people can access. We would also lift up that in the midst of COVID, our state could include medical debt elimination and protections within the context of our COVID-19 recovery plans. It, there's an opportunity there for us to realize that the pandemic has only complicated the need for medical attention and some unanticipated medical expenses for folks. Do you worry that a legislature that is typically very fiscally conservative might have issues with the policies that you're proposing? I, I mean, worry, sure, like we always worry about, <laughs> about policy and the like. But, you know, we have good data. We have policy solutions that we're putting forward. Uh, there are other states who have enacted much of what uh, Abby and I just described. And we plan to pursue this pretty doggedly and aggressively. And, you know, I'll just say, I, as we think about Alice, who is our neighbor, who is our family, who perhaps we've been Alice in the past or Alice helped raise us. I think our state legislators understand that the counties and districts that they represent have an overabundance of Alice families who are working hard. And we all can fall prey to unexpected debt emergencies and, and medical challenges, and that we can really see ourselves in these conversations in a way that really humanizes that this is an opportunity to ensure that people who are working and contributing to our local economies can continue to do so in the best way possible. And raise their children to do the same and focus on the basics and things that really matter versus this just overwhelming, crushing medical debt that, you know, can really be not just detrimental to that individual and their family, but the neighborhood and the community in which they live. I've been speaking with Dr. Sharice West Candlebury, president and CEO of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, and Abby Hughes Holesclaw, senior director for Arkansas Asset Funders Network. Ladies, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Dr. Sharice West Scandalberry is president and CEO of the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation, and Abby Hughes Holesclaw is senior director for Arkansas Asset Funders Network. They spoke with Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore. 
Just ahead on Ozarks, we have one more week of past Prior Center profiles before Randy Dixon brings in new digitally archived sounds of Arkansas history. In about two minutes from a 2020 visit from Randy, tracing the creation of the McClellan Kerr Navigation System. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. The Lunch Hour, KUAF's monthly concert series, continues Friday, February 18th with musical performance by Amour and lunch from Secondhand Smoke. Doors open at noon, space is limited, registration and masks are required. KUAF.com for more information. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour Concerts, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years. George'sLive.com for more information. As the Arkansas legislature convenes for the start of a fiscal session today, a new survey of likely voters finds a majority approve of the job done by Governor Asa Hutchinson. There's also lukewarm support for the incumbent U.S. Senator, while most say they don't approve of President Joe Biden. Roby Brock, editor-in-chief of Talk Business and Politics, has this analysis. Well, I think there's three takeaways from this Hutchinson-Bozeman-Biden poll. Number one, uh, Governor Asa Hutchinson, 59% to 38% job approval. This is These are very good numbers, particularly in a year with uh, incumbents. And Governor Hutchinson not only enjoys widespread support with Republicans, he also has support among independents and even Democrats, which is pretty good for almost uh, eight years into his term as governor. Uh, John Bozeman, upside down, 38% job approval, 46% disapproved. These are general election voters. When you look at the numbers in terms of how Republicans support John Bozeman, he's in the 60% range in there. That's where his biggest challenge is going to be in the primary. So we'll see if those numbers hold among Republican voters for John Bozeman. Then he can worry about the general election. And lastly, Joe Biden, extremely unpopular. The president has a 37% job approval rating in Arkansas, 60% job disapproval. You're going to see President Joe Biden be the target of every Republican running for every office from the U.S. Senate down to the Justice of the Peace. Uh, He's going to be the person that they're going to make public enemy number one because of his deep unpopularity. And in that 60% who disapprove of the the president's job performance, 51% of those strongly disapprove. So the president's very unpopular in Arkansas. That's Roby Brock with our partner, Talk Business and Politics. The Talk Business and Politics Hendricks College poll surveyed 961 likely Arkansas voters with a margin of error of plus or minus 4.4%. When you look to the future and contemplate the benefits that are going to flow from it, especially taking the overall benefits, the overall cost of this project, a billion, two hundred million dollars, when you take the number of lakes that it creates and the number and and the transportation, the cheap transportation that it's going to provide, the electric power, when we take all of that into account, it's been cheap at half, at double the price. This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from his home in Fayetteville is Randy Dixon. Randy is with the David and Barbara Pryor for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. The physical building is on the square, but it also has digital archives. We explore once a week or so. Randy, welcome back to Ozarks at Large. Great to be here. Thanks, Kyle. Well, let's uh, see. We've talked about people. We've talked about places. I like this one. We've talked about events. This one's kind of a system, sort of a, sort of a all of the above. Well, you, you know, you wouldn't think that an Army Corps of Engineers waterway project could be an interesting topic, but uh, this is the McClellan Kerr navigation system, and the story is pretty fascinating. As you heard uh, before we came out, uh, that, that was Senator John McClellan who was talking about how much this thing costs. It was one billion two hundred million dollars and that's in nineteen sixties money. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yes, yes indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was it was a waterway system uh, from Tulsa to the Mississippi River. So it went through much of Oklahoma, uh, all of Arkansas uh, it was 445 miles long and included 18 locks and dams and made the river navigable for the first time, which was huge. But 
uh, and it was a joint effort between the two states to to get uh, the legislation passed. Oklahoma and Arkansas. Yes. Well, it bears the name of a, of a couple of senators. Yes, uh, John McClellan of Arkansas and Robert Kerr of Oklahoma. And it's known as the McClellan-Kerr River Navigation System, unless you're in Oklahoma. <laughs> right. And I talked to a buddy of mine who's the news director uh, in Tulsa, and he said, well, here in Oklahoma, it's known as the Kerr-McClellan <laughs> Navigation System. And he uh, was saying he thinks even on the signs it's reversed. In Oklahoma. So so in each state, the native son gets uh, top billing. Yes. You know, it, it had, it, it, it was spearheaded by John McClellan, but it was um, backed by the entire Arkansas delegation, uh, including Wilbur Mills, who was, you know, he had the purse strings. He was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee. And uh, he showed his extreme support and defended the expense of the project. Well, Congressman, uh, as chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and sort of in charge of our purse strings, how do you justify this $1,200,000,000 expenditure? This type of a program cannot be done by a private uh, enterprise. It must be done by government. And uh, the only way government can do it, of course, is to use the tax revenues that are taken from individuals to carry it out. Now, we don't do these uh, kind of projects until we are assured by what I think is the greatest body of uh, engineers we have anywhere in the world, the Corps of Engineers, that in return for a given amount of cost, uh, we receive back not only that in benefit, but additional dollars in benefit. All one has to do is to look to the progress of the Ohio Valley, the Tennessee Valley, and other river projects that have been uh, developed, uh, navigation has been included in them, to see what happens. We're talking about the McClellan-Kerr River Navigation System, its creation, and how much it costs and things like that. I'm with Randy Dixon from well, the Prior and, Center. And it did have its critics. Uh, Senator Barry Goldwater uh, made the comment that it would be less expensive to pave <laughs> <laughs> the entire river than uh, it it would to to set up this system. Well, and the argument, right, was that, yes, this is Oklahoma and Arkansas, two states, but if you're connecting the Arkansas River down to the Mississippi, this is more than a two-state or regional uh, exercise. Right, right. And it brings in, you know, it's the Port of Little Rock, the Port of Pine Bluff. You have all of these different ports uh that were built because of this waterway. And it it really opened this portion of the country to, to national commerce. And, uh, well, McClellan talks about how this is a national asset. Achievement, not just for the people along the Arkansas Valley, not just for the people of Arkansas, not just for the people in this particular section, Arkansas and Oklahoma, but this is a national asset. This contributes to the economy of the whole nation. This is what from, from the natural resources that you take and harness them and control them and convert them into something productive. And that's what we have done with this. Otherwise, this would be a wild, raging stream, often torrents of destruction going down, but no more. We've harnessed it. We're going to take that great force that it has, would have gone in its natural way for destructive purposes and converted it into a power for production and for the benefit of the people. Uh, you're going to, in other words, you're going to put this old river to work. It is going to work. And it is going to work. And it worked beautifully. That's Senator John McClellan. Um, you also have a cut from uh, another member, longtime member of the Arkansas congressional delegation, John Paul Hammerschmidt. Well, he had a, a great, you know, asset in that it came through his entire district, the third district of Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, and uh, not only did it help in commerce. 
Uh, it, it also helped with flood control along the river. And the flood control aspects of river development is also of great importance. And it holds a special meaning for those of you here who have lived along the river and whose home or barns or cattle have been swept away or whose crops have been ruined or whose business has been shut down by the scourge of floods in past years. Longtime member of the U.S. House from Harrison, John Paul Hammerschmidt, talking about flood control with the McClellan Kerr River Navigation System. I can under you can understand if you're talking about 1.2 billion dollars in the early 1960s, you can understand why some people would really you know kind of raise some eyebrows about it. Well, in in eight years of construction, sure, but you know there were eight locks and dams, and there were several dedications, you know, over time. Um, but the biggest was the actual Kerr Lock and Dam in mm. Salisaw, Oklahoma. And one of his old-time buddies from the Senate was former Senator and former President Lyndon Johnson. And unfortunately, uh, Robert Kerr never lived to see mm. the culmination of this work. But... Uh, LBJ made a point to come and be the keynote speaker at this dedication. This is one of the days that I have looked forward to. I came here to be with you today so I could celebrate the future. All the future that is embodied in this great dam, in this great project, in this great river. But I came here, too, to honor the memory of one of the greatest characters I ever knew and one of the best friends I ever had, Robert S. Kerr, the senator from Oklahoma. From the dedication of the McClellan Kerr River Navigation System, or for our friends uh, to the west of our studio, the Kerr-McClellan River (laughs) Navigation (laughs) System. Exactly. Um, but and then there was there, there was another dedication, and uh, and uh, John McClellan did want to pay tribute to his colleague and point out that it was a multi-state uh, effort. For 14 years, Senator Kerr and I, supported by all of the members of the Arkansas and Oklahoma congressional delegations labored together to bring about the construction of this great river basin improvement, the completion of which we proudly celebrate today. Eight years ago, I said on the floor of the Senate, and I quote, the people of Arkansas will never forget and will always be grateful for the tremendous contribution that Bob Kerr made to the bringing of this river project into fruition. Generations yet unborn will benefit from the prosperity which this program will bring to the Arkansas River Valley. Now that this great waterway is completed and in operation, we are crossing the threshold of a new area to an area of progress, unprecedented progress, in the Arkansas River Valley. And we should point out, uh, archives that we hear on these uh, visits come to us from the Prior Center, but these are among the uh, archives that are being digitized that come from the KATV Studio Library, correct? Yes, and many of them can be seen already at PriorCenter.com. All right, when we say the McClellan-Kerr River Navigation System, of course, John McClellan's name is in there. He was a longtime senator from Arkansas. Perhaps perhaps he's not as well-remembered as John Fulbright or Dale Bumpers or David Pryor, but this, this is a big legacy of his. Yes, and he, when he died in November of 77, it was just less than a week after he'd announced his retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember his big line was, there's a time to aspire, a time to achieve, and a time to retire. And 
he announced that he was not going to run again, and he he died less than a week later. Mm. Uh, but at at his uh, memorial service, at his funeral, uh, the famous Emmanuel Baptist Church Reverend W. O. Vault was doing uh, his eulogy, and he said that he had been up to his apartment that overlooked the Arkansas River uh, just shortly before he died, and he made this comment. He would look out, as he called it, over his Arkansas River and think about how good it had been to open up this part of the country to commerce, and I suppose this was the crowning physical achievement of his life. He worked together with Senator Kerr, as you know, and for many years they worked on that project, and now those two Baptists, Senator Kerr and McClellan, are together again. That from the uh, funeral of Senator John McClellan. You know, Randy— And that's his legacy. And that is his legacy. And you know— there are things that so many of us in this region interact with every day. The Bobby Hopper Tunnel, f- Old Main, uh, you know, the Buffalo River, things like that, that we really have at the forefront. I think the McClellan Kerr navigation system sometimes, because not all of us move barges or, or, or whatever, and it's been around for a while, I think we sometimes forget its importance and its influence on this region. Well, and it also created parks, right. it created lakes and reservoirs, and uh, it, it did amazing things for the state. So, uh, there you go. Uh, that, this has been a fun one. I mean, they've all been fun, but uh, I, I like this one because it, it, it's not one that just bubbles right up to the top when you think of important topics from Arkansas history and Oklahoma. That's true. That's true. Yeah, that, that one just kind of came on me, you know. I like it. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Just Google Pryor Center, and you're going to find all kinds of visual and oral history at your fingertips. Randy, thanks so much for this. Thank you. It's great. American singer, songwriter, and actor Josh Groban and his Harmony Tour with Preservation Hall Jazz Band will perform on Thursday, July 21st at Walmart Amp in Rogers. Tickets are now available at amptickets.com or 443-5600. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. PackRat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. This is Ozarks at Large. It's Valentine's Day. And if you have hearts on the brain, probably more of the chocolate box or candy variety. But this month, health officials want you to show some love to your actual heart. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. At the end of January, President Joe Biden proclaimed February American Heart Month. According to numbers from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. And Arkansas ranks fourth highest in the nation for its hypertension rate. Dr. David Goff is the director of cardiovascular sciences at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. He says Arkansas, like many of its neighbors in the South, can blame diet for most of those heart health risks. Yeah, well, you know, certainly heart disease is a major problem in Arkansas, and so is blood pressure. Uh, about 40% of adults in Arkansas have high blood pressure, and that ranks fourth among all states. And the most likely explanation for that is the, um, the diet uh, that we eat and the activity that we get or don't get. Uh, and the two of those, of course, uh, combined to uh, lead to being overweight or obese. So for the diet, what's important to keep your blood pressure in good shape and your heart health good is eating more uh, vegetables and fruits and whole grains, less salt, uh, less fatty meats, uh, and then moving more, being more active, getting half an hour or so of brisk activity most days. If you do those things, you can also keep your weight down Uh, And the combination of all of that will help keep your blood pressure down and your heart health better. A 2020 study from the CDC reports that one in four deaths were heart-related. And Goff says the term heart disease 
can encompass any ailment that affects the heart or blood vessels. Most commonly, though, it's coronary artery disease or a blockage of the coronary arteries that can lead to heart attack or stroke. Well, I think one of the most important myths that people have is that you know, heart disease is something you don't need to worry about until you're old and that it's a good way to go. So don't worry about it. And uh, if you have your heart attack, that'll be just fine. Uh, but heart disease still takes far too many of us far too young, uh, leaving um, gaps in our families. Uh, and if you do survive that heart attack or stroke, it leads to a lot of um, suffering and, and disability. So the myth that it's um, something that only happens when you're old and is an easy way to go is one that we need to dispel. Uh, and we need to focus on improving our heart health as early as we can uh, and carry that with us uh, throughout our lives. Goff says heart disease is something that develops over time, which is why people of any age should be mindful of their own heart health. Yeah, well, you know, most of us, uh, by the time we're in our 40s or 50s, uh, we've, we've already started to build up that um, disease in our blood vessels. It starts really in our teens and 20s and, and progresses over time uh, in relation to the diet and activity. And at young ages, we've learned that the habits that we develop as kids and as teenagers, they really can set us on a good path or a bad path for our heart health because the, the heart problems, the disease in the arteries starts in childhood and adolescence and progresses through adulthood until it becomes a problem like a heart attack or a stroke in middle age or um, older. And Goff says some risks for heart disease can't be controlled, like age or family history. But the most common contributing factors for about half of Americans include weight, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and smoking. Uh, The good news is that it's largely preventable, and especially if we uh, take care of ourselves starting early in life. It's never too early to be focused on improving our heart health. Good news is it's never too late. So for those of us who are a little bit older, uh, there's still something we can do to improve our heart health. So the the important thing to do at any stage of life, middle-aged, older, or younger, is to do those things probably your mama told you to do, right? Eat right, which means more uh, vegetables and fruits and whole grains, less salt, less fatty meats. Move more get more physical activity, don't smoke, uh, try to stay lean, and then know your numbers, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your blood sugar, and control them with your doctor's help if, if you need to take medicine to control them. So those will probably be the most important things for people to do. Goff also says the past two years definitely haven't helped to ease heart and health problems in the U.S., In fact, from 2019 to 2020, life expectancy in the U.S. dropped from nearly 79 to 77 years old. He says the threat of COVID-19 can also contribute to heart disease in more ways than the obvious. Uh, Yeah, the pandemic's really been a double or triple whammy on our heart health. Uh, the, The first thing is the virus attacks the blood vessels in the body including the blood vessels in the heart, and can also attack the heart muscle cells, Uh, can increase blood clots throughout the body. So the virus itself can be damaging to our heart health. Uh, But you're right, the stress, the social isolation, um, that has been a major problem for us too. And some people have responded to that by resorting to some comfort foods, which may be less healthy for us, Uh, getting less activity if they're concerned about going out and going into public places. We've seen weight gain. Uh, We've seen blood pressure levels go up, uh, probably as a result of, um, you know, bad diet and less activity during the pandemic. And we've also seen disrupted access to health care, whether it be for preventive services, like getting your blood pressure checked and controlled, or whether it even be for acute issues like heart attacks and strokes that people don't want to go to the hospital because the hospitals are full of people with COVID. So these three things, um, direct damage to the blood vessels in the heart, 
the effects of stress and social isolation and the disruptions of healthcare, uh, all related to the pandemic, have uh, been that double or triple whammy. So Goff says the easiest thing that anyone can do right now to help their heart is find ways to manage stress in a healthy way. And for different people, that'll be different things. For some people, it's meditation. For some people, it's prayer. For other people, it's physical activity, working it out at the gym. But managing your stress in a healthy way, as opposed to an unhealthy way, which might be going to that comfort food, eating more than you need, um, not getting enough activity, maybe drinking more alcohol than is healthy for you. So trying to manage your stress in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way, I think is probably the most important thing right now. But he also says when it comes to matters of the heart, a little kindness can go a long way too. You know, it's also important to recognize that you need to be kind to yourself. It can, it can seem overwhelming if you feel like you have to change all of these things all at once. So being kind to yourself, picking something that you can start with, making small changes and building on it over time, uh, that's going to be the secret to success. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. Tomorrow on Ozarks, building a bigger pool of music professionals for lighting, production, sound, and more in Northwest Arkansas. The Music Education Initiative is working with the next generation of music professionals in our region. We learn more on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and 7 p.m. and on the podcast version of our show, available through any major podcast distributor. A new study is examining changes in the planet Mars core that may have led to the magnetic field of Mars to weaken over time, leaving the atmosphere vulnerable. Could the same be happening right now on Mercury? It's scratching the surface with the KUAF Pluto manager, Caitlin Ahrens. Mercury, the closest planet to our sun, has an incredibly weak magnetic field, only about 1% of Earth's, indicating part of the core is liquid, but just barely. Solar wind from the mighty sun actually distorts Mercury's magnetic field, compressing it on the day side, and then it stretches out to form a long tail on the night side. Interaction between the solar wind, which is just a constant bombarding stream of charged particles, and the magnetic field creates a beautiful bow shock. Planetary magnetic fields are generated by flows in the hot, liquid iron cores of the planets. Measurements made by Mariner 10 in 1974 to 1975 showed that Mercury does indeed have a magnetic field. But this has recently been confirmed by the NASA space probe, MESSENGER. Some questions that still remain are how the bow shock is indicative of the interior dynamics, the changing of the bow shock shape, and how the large discrepancy in the field strength could be explained. The Beppe Colombo mission, set to arrive at Mercury in 2025, will hopefully give us much more information on the planet's core and magnetic field. Caitlin Ahrens studied space and planetary sciences at the University of Arkansas. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Scratching the Surface is a production of KUAF Public Radio in Fayetteville, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Huntsville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Today's show produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors included Matthew Moore, Daniel Carruth, and Randy Dixon. Scratching the Surface is produced by Pete Hartman in the Nancy Blair Operations Studio at KUAF. Additional material today provided by Talk Business and Politics and KUAR. I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks so much for being with us. Back tomorrow.